I'm going to welcome you to worship this morning. Uh, during the month of March, as we prepare for Easter, we are going to do something a bit different. I'm going to put uh, Psalms to the side, and we're going to do a series on the seven statements of Christ, his last words, and analyze them and, and relate that to um, what happened to Christ and what it means to us today. So we're going to be doing that all through March. We're going to do communion every Sunday, which we don't normally do, just to help prepare ourselves for uh, the crucifixion week and then to get ready for um, Easter Sunday, as glorious as that day is. So it's going to be a little bit different uh, kind of service. Uh, it's going to be a different service today because I'm not going to have uh, slides with a whole bunch of notes and sub points and all that stuff. It's going to be completely different. Uh, and so I just want you to focus on what I'm going to say. So uh, it's good to have you in God's house and we look forward to him speaking. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, sending your son uh, to be our Savior. And Lord, we thank you for leaving the glory of heaven uh, to become a man and to walk this old earth and to willingly go all the way to the cross to bear our sin. We thank you for what you've done. May we learn from your final words um, great theology and how it pertains to our lives. Uh, whether we know you or don't know you, uh, speak to us in a profound way so that we're changed. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, final words are the seven statements of Christ. And I state that these uh, changed the world, and indeed they have. They've changed me. Hopefully they've changed you. Uh, you don't forget final words when you hear them from somebody that you love. You remember them. They're like embedded on your heart and your soul. Uh, years ago, when I was a newlywed back in uh, 1981, I got graduated from college in May, uh, like the first week of May of 1980. Uh, got married to Liz later in that month. Uh, moved from San Diego to Northern California. Uh, to work as a landscaper for a year before I went to Dallas Seminary. Um, in that one year, uh, in January of that year, Jan uh, 1981, uh, my father uh, called me from San Diego and said that my uh, grandmother, Lily, his mom, uh, was in uh, South Carolina and wanted to see me because she was dying. And uh, my dad uh, had 10 sisters, as I've told you before, so he was the only boy. Uh, and uh, because of that, he was the last person in the lineage with the Baker name. So that was a, he was uh, huge to the family. Uh, and the family had never left that region for generations. So my grandma was one of 16, my dad, my grandpa was one of 10, and then they themselves had 11 children. So you can imagine how many relatives I have. But out of all those relatives, my dad was the last Baker. And then when they had me, I was the last Baker. So I was real close to my grandma Lily. So when she said she wanted to see me, I didn't have to think about it told my boss at the landscape company, I know you just hired me, but my grandma's dying. I, I, I've got to go see her. So he turned me loose, and I flew uh, to meet my dad in Atlanta. He was on a court case prosecuting one of his crooked agents uh, who was taking money on the side as a government agent. So my dad went to go prosecute him uh, in Miami. And so we uh, met and flew from uh, Atlanta to my dad's little hometown in, in uh, Kershaw. Um, Every year of my life, we drove from Southern California to Kershaw, South Carolina, to see my grandma and grandpa and all my hundreds of relatives. Uh, so I'd seen everything as a child. I had never gone there as a man. Uh, when you're a man, you see things differently, don't you? When you're a kid, you don't pay attention to the fact that your grandparents were poor. I just, uh, there was always food on the table. My grandma and grandpa loved me. I never paid attention to that they didn't have anything. And so when I went back as a man, had not, hadn't been there for years, because I'd gone to college and everything, um, when I went to my grandma's house uh, that January, cold January day, I could not believe how poor she was. That's the first thing that struck me. 
Um, when I walked in the house, same floor that was there in the 60s when I was a kid was still there. You, the, it was all worn through. You could see the wood floor underneath it in spots. Never had the money to replace the linoleum. Uh, same old furniture that I had seen in pictures, you know, as a kid that had been around since the 20s and 30s. It was there when I was a kid. It's the same furniture. They didn't have any money to replace it. When I was uh, told by my grandma where I was going to sleep in the little three-bedroom house that they had, it was in a back bedroom. I slept in my dad's bed that he had as a kid, but it was 11 degrees the first night, and there's no heat in the back house. Those are tough people back then. Imagine, they had 11 children, three bedrooms, one bathroom, no shower, and no heat in those rear bedrooms. And so I put on like 45 blankets over my body, you know. So I stayed with my, my grandma for like a week, and, and knowing that she's, I'm not going to ever see her again. I mean, every moment I was with her. And uh, she had a little rocking chair. I sat next to her on the couch. Sometimes I'd put her on the couch, put my arm around her, talk to her, have her tell me stories about the family and stuff. Had an awesome time. But the day I dreaded was the day I had to fly back. And I knew that day was coming. And when that day happened, I had to get up like at 3.30 in the morning. Um, I got dressed really slow because I, I just didn't, I didn't want to tell her goodbye. Uh, but I knew I did, so I eventually went into her little bedroom. When you came off the front porch, what should have been the living room was her bedroom. So anybody that came, can you imagine, anybody that came to your house that came through your bedroom, they didn't have any money. That was her bedroom. So I, I went in there. She had a little lamp on next to her bed. She was sitting there, a little frail thing that she was. And uh, my dad hugged her and gave her a kiss last time goodbye as her son, her only son. Uh, and, and then it was my turn. And I leaned down and told her I loved her. Uh, you ever hug somebody like that and you didn't want to stop hugging them? Do you know what I mean? And I'm a big guy. I didn't want to like hurt my grandma, but I'm like, I just don't think they're going to be able to pry me off of her neck. And I was, I was crying. You know, she was crying. I told her I loved her. She told me she loved me. And then my dad's sister, my Aunt Shirley, was waiting there to take us. And, and I knew I had to leave. And so I finally told my grandma goodbye. What were her final words to me? Simple. Marty, I love you. Final words. Do you think I'll ever forget those words? Nope. See, I was 22 at the time. I'm 63 now. I still had to think about whether I could even tell you this story today. You know what I mean? It's an emotional thing, final words. When you think about final words, uh, apply that same emotion to the words of Christ. He had fi seven final statements from the cross, correct? Seven final statements. He went on the cross at 3 o'clock, or at 6 o'clock, uh, according to Jewish time, the, uh, their time reckoning was the third hour. So at 9 o'clock in the morning was when he would have been put on the cross in our time reckoning. Uh, from 9 o'clock uh, in the morning, uh, where they crucified him until noon, uh, he uttered three statements from the cross. At noon, uh, the Father turned down the cosmos and made it extremely dark on planet Earth. And so from noon till three, when Christ died, he uttered four more times, four more statements. I would put to you, those are probably statements you would want to know, that if God left the glory of heaven and went to a cross for you, the seven last thing he said must have major impact in a life, should. And you should not forget them, just like I don't forget what my grandma told me. Um, but because Christ died on that cross, I'll see Lily again, Right? Yeah, and in fact, they gave me her Bible. I have it in my office, her little well-worn Bible with all the family things in it. Sometimes I open it. It's comforting.
But Jesus gives you hope that one day uh, you'll be with him in, in paradise, as we'll cover here in a few weeks. But if you want to understand how do the gospel accounts portray what happened to Jesus, it's kind of confusing when you read them because they're each one giving you their perspective. So if you really want to see chronologically what happened, uh, you need a special book to do that. It's called The Harmony of the Gospels. I have several of them. Uh, one uh, that I use uh, when I study the Gospels is by uh, Robert Thomas and Stan Gundry. Uh, it's called the NIV, New International Version, Harmony of the Gospels. So if you want to read chronologically what happened, like in Christ's life, and especially that last week, and which statement comes before which statement, you need one of those. And so I'm, that's what I'm using to determine what were the seven statements and in which order were they given. But when you read uh, that harmony, uh, it kind of gives you a little schematic of what happened uh, when they crucified Christ. Uh, we know that he was uh, crucified in a public place. When I take people to look at the archaeological sites when I go to Israel, uh, one of the places we take them when we go to Jerusalem uh, is we uh, go to the north side of, the, of what would be the Temple Mount, the wall, uh, and we go to Gordon's Calvary, which looks like a skull. And that's theorized to be the place where Christ was crucified because it looks like a skull because uh, he, he was crucified on Golgotha, which is a word which has come from the, the Latin cranium, which refers to a skull. But the problem with that viewpoint is that particular site uh, was mined out, uh, I think in the 1800s, to where it looks like a skull. In Christ's day, it didn't look like that. Uh, I don't think that is the site, but it looks like the site just when you see it. The other site is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is just outside the Western Gate, which I think is a, where the uh, more evidence that that's the site where Christ died. Either way, he was crucified outside the gate in full public view. And I find this interesting because they put a prisoner there on the cross as a deterrent to future criminals, that if you are caught doing X, Y, Z, this is what's going to happen to you. That's where the guilty were hung. But the only problem was Christ was not guilty. He was innocent an innocent man on that cross. He's dying for the guilty ones. We also learned that Jesus was uh, nailed to the tree, as I said. Um, it would have been 9 a.m. when they finally positioned the cross in the hole and put him up. Uh, the crucifixion detail com was composed of four Roman soldiers. This is what they did for their duty assignment. Could you imagine? Uh, over the head of Christ, uh, Pilate placed what is called in Latin a titleus. A titleus uh, is the Latin version of a, a word which means an inscription. And it was written in three languages, basically. Uh, Latin, uh, Aramaic, which is similar to Hebrew, uh, and Greek. Uh, and if you take what the gospel accounts say of the names that were put on that, uh, in totality it would have said, this is Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth the king of the Jews. Uh, the religious leaders we know uh, wanted Pilate to remove it because that was not their king. And Pilate, uh, in typical uh, harsh Roman fashion, said, basically, I've said it, it's done. Not changing. When you think about Greg's sermon last week uh, on the Tower of Babel, where God came down and cursed mankind in his arrogance, trying to become like God, Babel in Hebrew means to be confused. And if you've ever taken a foreign language, you will understand that particular word, will you not? Who has not taken a foreign language and thought, Vasis los? Yeah, it's confusion at first. But the, the confusion is a sign of the curse. When you see Jesus on this cross uh, in these three languages, it's kind of in a latent way where the father says, my son's going to fix what happened at Babel. I'm going to fix it. Because the, the name in the Aramaic and the Hebrew represents 
well, the Jew, the great religion. When you think about the Latin, the, the, the Romans representing great law. And when you think of the Greek, you think of uh, philosophers, the scientists, the rhetoric-based people, the thinker types. He says that my son's going to pay the penalty for sin for all of those people and save them. It was a titleist. On his left and his right were two known criminals. Scholars theorized they were probably associated with Barabbas, who was released in behalf of Christ, who took his place. Uh, they were probably insurrectionists. It's innocent. The innocent is between two criminals. I find this ironic. He is going to lay his life down for them. Shortly after uh, they placed Christ on the cross, that it tells us in the book of John chapter 19, that's when the soldiers, the crucifixion detail composed of four soldiers, uh, began to divide up his clothes. Here's what John says in chapter 19. It says, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and they made four parts. To each soldier a part. And also the tunic, uh, that was the fifth part. It says, Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They therefore said among themselves, let us not tear it, uh, but cast lots for it of whose it shall be. It was worth, it was worth money. It says the scripture was then fulfilled that they divided my garments among them and my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, John says the soldiers did these things. Jesus had four outer garments. He had a belt, he had sandals, he had a head covering and he had an outer tunic. That's what the four soldiers split among themselves. But the fifth piece, the inner tunic that was next to his body without a seam was a costly garment. They rolled the dice for that. Could you imagine the audacity of this? The son of God's hanging on the cross and you, a clueless soldier, are doing what? Producing dice to gamble away his clothing? It's unbelievable. Could you imagine if you were Mary standing there watching them take your son's clothing? What would you be thinking? Could I just have a belt? Couldn't I just have his tunic? Could I have his sandals that walked all over Israel healing? And couldn't I just have those? No, they, t- they took all of those. I was thinking about it this week. If his inner tunic could have spoken, what would it have said? I mean, not that it can. I'm not psychologically imbalanced, don't worry. But, but if it could speak, if the tunic could speak that they're rolling the dice for, imagine what it could have said. Oh, I was there. I was there when that, when that man couldn't walk who was lame. I was there when Jesus gave him new legs. Oh, I was there. I was there when the blind man who couldn't see from birth, when he gave him new eyes and gave him the ability to see. Oh, yeah, I remember that one. Yeah. The lady with the issue of blood. Yeah, he stopped that. You know, I was there when he, when he, Lazarus, when he said, Lazarus, come forth from the tomb. I was there when he came out. Nothing like that day. Can you imagine if the tuna could speak? I mean, think. And they are taking something like that and doing what with it? They're rolling dice. Isn't gambling a terrible thing? It's a horrific thing. Clueless soldiers had no idea. It's at this point we read, when you look at the gospel accounts in a, in a harmony, um, Luke 23, verse 34 says that at this point is when Jesus looked down from the cross and uttered his first statement. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Then he says, they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. Think about if you were hanging on the cross, if they had beaten you, flogged you, crown of thorns on your head, spit in your face, mocked you, all these things, 
What would be your first words as you're watching them divide your clothing? I mean, think about it. I can tell you what I would probably say. Father, vaporize them. <laughs> this is Marty talking as a carnal man, okay? Don't go, I would not, no. Judge them, you know, whatever. God, something right now. What did he say? What did he say to him? Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Um, if he said it in Greek, this is what it would have sounded like. Pater, his father. Pater, a face atus. A face means to forgive. Atus, them. Forgive them. Forgive them. I find those words are kind of haunting words. Those are moving words. Those are like way beyond even what my grandma told me. Because God had come down and hung on that cross for those soldiers. And he, he says, Father, would you please forgive them for what they're doing right now? How otherworldly. What does the word forgive mean? Well, uh, if you look at the words of Christ in Matthew 540, his sermon on the mountain, his very first sermon, he uses that same word to forgive in this passage. You just can't see it in the English text, but I'll tell you what word it is when I read it. Matthew 540, Jesus says, if anyone wants to sue you uh, and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. If somebody wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Notice what Jesus said. If somebody wants to sue you, give them more. Huh? No, he said, if you want to live like a kingdom person, you got to let go of extra stuff. Show them that you live a different way. Uh, what would happen in D.C. if attorneys started applying this? There's no way. What are you trying to do? I'm trying to get all I can out of that person. But if it was a Christian, it's like, well, they, can't, they gave me their car. They gave me this. They gave me that. Jesus says, when they want this, give them this. Now, what is interesting is when he says, let them have your coat also, the word let them have is the word for forgiveness. Interesting. What's that mean? It means I have something of worth and I choose willingly to turn it loose. Here. Has a, and you don't have to tell me the situation because when I say this, you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about. Has somebody done something to you that has hurt you deeply? Do you know their name? You, you absolutely know right now, don't you? Uh, and what is forgiveness? It is I am purposefully going to let go what I hold against you. I'm going to let go. I'm going to forgive you. We'll come back to that in just a minute. Forgiveness. Jesus says, Father, I have the power for you to take those soldiers and forgive them what they're doing. And why were they doing what they were doing? What does Jesus say? They do not know what they're doing. You know, when you're a Christian and you don't know God, there's a lot about your life. You do not know what you're doing. Clueless. And Jesus says, Father, these, these goyim, these Gentile soldiers, do not know who I am hanging on this cross. Think about, think about the Jewish people that were there that day. Because if anybody should have known who was hanging on the cross, it should have been them, right? They had all the prophecies. They had all the, the miracles. They had seen Jesus do all these miracles. One thing for a man to say he's God, another man thing for the man to prove it by doing the, the miracles that the prophet said he would do, like heal the lame, heal leprosy, etc. But they didn't embrace Christ as Messiah. Why? 
Uh, John chapter 1, verse 10 says, he, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him. So he's the creator. So the creator who created everything that exists out of nothing, he's, he's God. He is the great I am. He has no causation. He just is. He makes all that is, all the cause effect that we see. He's the origin of it all. It says he made the worlds, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, speaking of the Jews, and those who were his own, they didn't receive him. Why didn't they receive him? Well, there's an ancient curse uh, placed on them by God in the book of Isaiah uh, because of hundreds of years of rejecting the prophets. And in chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, which is repeated in Matthew chapter 13, verses 14 and 15, we read that curse in the time of Christ. It says, go tell this people, keep on listening, but don't perceive. Keep on looking, but they do not understand. Render their hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. It was an ancient curse. See, God is only patient for so long. And if you rejected prophet after prophet after prophet, word of God after word of God, finally God says, that's enough of that. I will curse you with the inability to really process the evidence in front of you. So when Jesus shows up and does all the healings and, and proves ipso facto, he's God, they're not all connecting the dots because of the blindness. The other reason why they rejected him is because they loved uh, darkness, not light. John says in chapter 1, verse 20, for everyone who does evil hates the light. And they do not come to the light for their, their fear that their deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. I mean, why isn't the church packed today? And it's not because of COVID. You understand this? It's because people know if they come to church, they're going to hear something that's going to bother the darkness of their world. They might have to make a decision to follow God or not. So they stay at home in the darkness. Why did they turn against Christ? Because they saw him as the light and they didn't want to leave the darkness. They loved the darkness more than the light. Does this mean that uh, Jesus who pronounced forgiveness to the soldiers at the foot of his cross wouldn't forgive his people? Mm, no, doesn't mean that at all. It just means they had to come to him in repentant faith. When you read the rest of the, the New Testament and when you get to the book of Acts, uh, you will find uh, that after Jesus uh, was resurrected and ascended into heaven in chapter one, when the church was formed, when the Holy Spirit descended upon the Jews at Pentecost, uh, and they began uh, praising God, and it was totally evident that he was there because they started speaking in dialects that were not there, uh, not known to them. This would be like if I didn't know Russian, and I all of a sudden speaking to you in fluent Russian, the Greek word in, in, in uh, Acts 2 is dialectos. This was a miracle at Pentecost the proof that Jesus was in this new entity called the church because his followers, these Jewish believers at Pentecost, are speaking about the Messiah in languages not known to them. If you could start speaking a fluent language right now, this would be a miracle, right? I mean, I took four years of German. I wouldn't say I'm fluent. I can do guten talk, and that's about it. It's unbelievable. Imagine fluency. Well, that came from God. It says in Acts chapter 2, verse 31 and verse 42, that on that day of Pentecost, 3,000 Jewish people were saved. Don't you know that many of them were either at the crucifixion or had family members that were there? And they got saved. Why? Because the, the blindness that had been put on them for their rejection of God for hundreds of years 
was lifted when they came to God and said, God, forgive us. And he forgave them in mass. You know, the forgiveness of God trumps hatred every single time and saves people. Saved those uh, soldiers that day when he looked down for the cross and said, God, I, Father, I, I forgive them what they're doing. Forgiveness was explained by Mark Twain this way. Forgiveness is the fragrance that a flower leaves on the heel of the one who crushed it. Forgiveness is the fragrance that a flower leaves on the heel of one who crushed it. Forgiveness is a wonderful thing, isn't it? Because when God forgives us, it is a fragrance that you never forget the smell of that in your life because you're free from your sin and you know it. You free from your sin? You free from your sin? See, to me, I would think that it's probably a time in your lifetime when you came to terms with the man on the cross because we're all born like those soldiers at the foot of the cross, clueless. But then we hear him speak words from the cross, Father, forgive Marty, Steve, Larry, Kathy, Debbie, your name, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What do you need to do? Well, trade kingdoms. That's when you say, God, forgive me, a sinner. The minute you do that, he forgives you and makes you his child forever. There's nothing better that could happen to you. What might you need to say to God? Uh, in case you need to prime the pump, I'll help you. Father, forgive me for running from you for so long. I stopped running today. Uh, Father, forgive me for thinking my arguments against you are airtight when you know they're not. Forgive me for living for myself, for leaving my wife and my children to pursue a life I should have never pursued. Forgive me. Forgive me for all the lame excuses and vacuous rationalizations I've manufactured to keep myself from kneeling before you. Forgive me for doing everything in my limited power to keep me from coming to you. Forgive me for self-righteously judging everybody around me but not judging myself. Forgive me. See, the minute you come to terms with God and say, God, forgive me, what's he do? He forgives the sinner. That's why he died on the cross. See, I can say I was safely bet that I would have been one of those soldiers at the foot of the cross, clueless. But I heard the master call years ago. When I came to him, he said, Marty, I forgive you. You forgiven? At the end of the service, we're going to have an altar call. What's an altar call? I'm gonna, I don't do many of them, but I'm going to come stand down here, and the worship team is going to come and sing. And um, we're, we're going to sing about forgiveness. We're singing for you. And if you want to come to know the Christ, I'll be down here. I'll have my mic off so it's private. I'll be masked up so you can't get COVID. Not that I have COVID. And I'm going to stand down here. Don't think of vain. This is the devil talking to you. He's probably got COVID. Don't do it. No, that's the devil. No, don't use those vain rationalizations. Just say, no, I hear the Spirit calling my name today. Today's the day that I come to know God. And I'll be down here praying with you. Just say, today, I ask for forgiveness. If you're a Christian and you know you're forgiven, the problem is, since you became a Christian, you've had a lot of things happen to you. Brother-in-law took advantage of you. Mother-in-law, wow, it's a war zone. Maybe it was your wife. Maybe it's a wayward child. Maybe it's a business partner. Stuff's happened to you. And you have these deep hurts and these issues, and you haven't let go of these things. You haven't forgiven them. Forgiveness is a point-in-time event. You choose to do this. Jesus chose to do it. You choose to do it. But as a human, it's some emotion you have to work through, isn't it? I mean, it's a thing. It's a thing. You might need to say, God, 
today's the day I need to let go of what I harbor against whoever. Show me how to forgive. Give me forgiveness in my soul that I can't manufacture myself. Ephesians 4, Paul says in verse 32, be kind as a Christian to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other. It's a present tense participle. Don't you love participles? It's a lifestyle. And then he says, just as God in Christ Jesus has also forgiven you. See, Jesus, the man on the cross, is telling his children, go live like me. When they take advantage of you, forgive them. Today's your day. There's a little story I came across several years ago. And sometimes I'll be reading in like a, you know, office, office complex or something, doctor's office, and I'll come across a story. I'm like, wow, that's amazing. It was about how they uh, trap monkeys on islands to make them like pets for families. So how do you catch a monkey? <sighs> I'm going somewhere with this, so don't worry. So what they do on, those, on an island is they'll take a coconut that falls at the base of the tree that monkeys love and they'll bore a hole in it because it's hard to open a coconut. So they'll bore a hole in it so the monkey can stick his hand in there and get the goodies, you know, the coconut. The only problem uh, with, uh, with the monkey is once he gets his hand in there and grabs a coconut, he can't get his hand back out with the coconut. Guess what he will never let go of? The coconut. They've totally got him. What's he need to do to get to freedom? Let go of the coconut. Now, this is an amusing little story with profound implications, isn't it? Because your hand's inside a coconut and you're holding on to something that God's telling you what? You gotta let go of that. That unbelief that you got, that atheism, that agnostic thinking, you gotta let go of that. And the minute you do, you're gonna be free. Or you as, an un, as a believer might be holding on to animosity toward a sister, a brother, an aunt, uncle. I've been down all those roads. And what's God saying to you today? It's time. Let go of that. And you'll be free.